Welcome to the Uncut Podcast. I'm Pastor Luke. I am Pastor Cameron. And this is the Uncut Podcast, where we have uncut conversations about faith, life, ministry, and all of the above. Um, Cameron, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I um, re sometimes I re-listen to either portions of the... I usually re-listen to portions of our podcast, and I went back and I told myself, Cameron, you need to talk more directly into the mic, because <laughs> you're too quiet on the podcast, <laughs> so I'm going to try and lean into the mic a little bit today, um, so you can hear me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and you know, the thing that's been surprised, that surprised me is like, I'll look back and I'll see the, the video, and you're like... All the way back here. And I'm actually pretty impressed with how well the audio does come through. It does. Um, yeah. Because if you're listening, Cameron often puts a good like two, three feet between himself and the microphone sometimes. Yeah. So I like to lean back and relax and try and enjoy the conversation. But yeah. I have to realize that, you know, there's people that need to hear what we're saying or they're <laughs> not going to listen if they can't hear. Um, yeah. But also, I think this is like, this should be episode... 16. 16. Yeah. Yep. I think like what the, I think the average podcast lasts about seven episodes before it kind of peters out. So we're twice as long as the average. I think so. Plus some. Yeah. So. Okay. I think we've, you know, if a podcast is going to make it, it needs to make it past like 10 episodes. I mean, I suppose it's, you know, if, if the podcast the longevity of a punk podcast was based upon how many listeners or viewers there was. Maybe we wouldn't survive, <laughs> but I don't know what our, even what our average um, viewership or listenership is right yeah. now. Well, actually I think it's fairly, it, I think we're maybe somewhere around half of what we get for the sermons that we send out, which I feel like is fairly competitive Okay. Um, for, you know, considering that we put, we've been putting out, sermon messages through podcast and YouTube and stuff like that for a long time. And that's got a pretty wide viewership mm-hmm. and we've, we haven't done significant advertising or even promotion of this podcast. Don't, don't think we've done a single like in person Sunday morning announcement about this. So nope. people are finding out about it through just word of mouth. Mostly. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should plug it on socials at some point. Yeah, maybe. We did plug it on socials in the very beginning. In the very beginning, yeah. But we haven't done like, you know, a lot with it. I guess one way okay, help us listeners. Oh yeah, listeners. And viewers help us by commenting um or rating depending on where you're listening or watching. Just comment or rate um so that we know that there's still some engagement or we're where um, we can see the engagement a little bit more. Yeah. That would be helpful mm-hmm. and encouraging. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I think pastors probably have a bit of a leg up on most people who try and do a podcast for the first time because we're already used to doing sort of very weekly, weekly talks. Talks. Like, and, and having to deliver kind of without fail. Um, yeah. You know, you don't want to come to a church where the pastor's like, Hey guys, it was a really busy week and I just 
ah, I just decided I just couldn't get it done today. So like, we're just going to sing some more songs. Like, right. Um, <laughs> like nobody comes to, back to that. No, church. no, nor <laughs> so, should they. No. So, you know, I think we've got a leg up on, you know, we're, we've already got a bit of a rhythm of doing things like that. Right. So I think that helps. Yeah. And I was, you know, speaking on the future of the podcast and topics and all of that, I was talking with a friend, it's a pastor in Erie, and um, you know their particular church is an Assemblies of God church, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, they, we we were talking about a. Uh, a problem or an issue that they were having in the midst of their worship service mm. and how I would go about addressing it and dealing with it. And, um, and it, and it got into a, a pretty, a pretty good, a pretty good conversation about like worship philosophy and like the orderliness of worship yeah, and the theology of the orderliness of worship mm-hmm. versus practicality of it yeah or and or like I mean, we've talked about this before and, and i know we we have it kind of on deck for a conversation at some point about spontaneous yeah um yeah. worship yeah I'm, I'm like knowing that you're talking about an assemblies of god church yeah and i'm like all right there's a handful of things i can imagine that yeah. might be happening yeah it was an issue with the gift of tongues yeah and interpretation yeah. and where you know, to what to what level does the pastoral leadership um, manage? I guess manage that in right. the midst of corporate worship, mm-hmm. and you know, we're also talking about a, a you know five hundred people in the church or something like that at that church. So it's a little yeah. bit you know bigger than conduit, and mm-hmm. the dynamics maybe are a little bit different. But anyway, what we're saying is what they. Um, He's the executive pastor, and um, his senior pastor, uh, Pastor uh, Nicole Schreiber, um, thought it may be a good idea sometime for us to get to to get together and like not like even do a stump for our positions. Sure, like a I'm right, you're wrong. Let's figure out who's more right and who's more wrong. Mm-hmm. But just be able to have a uh, an honest conversation about like maybe differences and approaches to worship orderliness mm-hmm. and um leadership mm, that would be fun yeah and we said like well yeah, let's do it over lunch or something like that i'm like well that would be fun but like mm-hmm. why don't we do it on a podcast <laughs> and let others benefit from mm-hmm. perspective yeah you know right. so maybe that's something that we can do in the future yeah i think that could be a really beneficial thing because like if you if you're committed to um if you're committed to a church or you're committed to like a certain uh, denomination of churches, not everybody gets the uh, not everybody gets a fair look over the fence of the other denominations necessarily. I think mm-hmm. like if you you've not had the opportunity to explore like if you're if you come from a more conservative maybe evangelical or middle of the road kind of place. And you've never been to a more um, charismatic church. Like you just like, you don't have a concept of what's on the other side of the fence 
other than maybe are just preconceived like notions or something like that. So I think there could be, there could be benefit to just like, Oh, like that's why that church does things like that. Right. Right. Instead of just saying, Oh, they're crazy. They're crazy. Or they're too conservative or they don't have the Holy spirit. We do or or whatever. Yeah. who, or they're like a, or they're a woke church or something like that. Yeah, um, that's a. Yeah, we could talk about that, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we will a little bit. Well, we kind of are today. A, a little bit today. A yeah. little bit because I, I do think that there we're gonna. There's a you know we're gonna talk about the big scary word deconstruction. Yeah. Um, maybe not be as scary for many people. I think there's some sense where. Um maybe in different church cultures or different areas of the world, if you say I'm deconstruct, like I'm in a process of deconstruction mm-hmm. as it pertains to my faith, they would know immediately what you're talking about and what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. I don't know that I'm like, I don't know that I'm convinced that if I said, sit up on a Sunday morning here at conduit and was like, how many of you have ever gone through a period where, where you know, like you've deconstructed your faith? That there would be an abundance of people who even knew what I was talking yeah. about. Well, it's still, as far as like words go, it's still a relatively new one in, yes. in common usage and is, you know, is probably, is thrown more around in probably, um, mm, I don't know, more just like in, in some, in certain cultures of the church and maybe more liberal centers, it was like a big thing in Chicago. Like everybody yeah. deconstructed everything in Chicago yeah. when I was there. See, I don't, I, I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not it is a um, phenomenon that happens on a certain side of a theological spectrum mm-hmm. or if it's a phenomenon that happens in a, within a certain, um, like age range like are millennials more um are they more do they tend to deconstruct more than boomers or gen xers right or wherever we are now i can't keep up Um, (laughs) you know so and and whether or not like that there's a timetable or not a timetable but if there's like a natural period of in which you generally will deconstruct right like kind of a theological um midlife crisis yeah i i think you're i think you're on to something there well and because i'm of the persuasion that deconstruction is nothing new that it's not it's not it's not at all it's something that's very very old we've been doing for a long time we've maybe just not named it that yes i think the name for it i think people i think people irrespective of like theological persuasions and um area political persuasions like regardless of all of that i think people just in general uh, at least here in the west very much deconstruct i think the west is very much in a um and we can talk about reasons why i think the west is prone to deconstruction but um, but I, I think maybe the word deconstruction itself, the terminology that has kind of gone around, it has become trendy in cer- certain circles, but not the phenomena of deconstruction. Correct. That's yeah. what I would say. And I mean, 
in the, in an effort to be super clear about what we're even yeah, talking about. We actually about. need to define yeah. what we're talking about. So when we talk about deconstruction, what we're talking about is the process that someone goes through when they the process that someone goes to when they begin to maybe take all of the things that they've classically believed or have been taught to believe or have thought, right? And they, in some way, shape, or form, begin to kind of systematically question the beliefs themselves, yeah. but also the premises that lie underneath the beliefs, yep. and start to come against the authority of that belief in their life, and yeah. may end up may end up completely rejecting completely rejecting the thing that they have previously believed because of how it was pushed into their life. Yep or how they came to believe it, or who believed it, mm -hmm. uh, or who else believes it. Yep. Sometimes we don't want to believe certain things anymore because, because of who the belief is associated that's, with. That's a big thing, yeah. You know? And I, I mean, even I can resonate with that. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I, I resonate. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, well, let's, I, I, you know, as you're describing it, I was like, what is it like a good example of this? And you know what, like a really maybe fun, funny example or easy example of this is like the kid who's grown up believing in Santa Claus. Right. Right. They've grown up believing in Santa Claus and the parents have maybe waited a long time to tell them that there's no Santa Claus. They maybe like have held off on like, we don't want to ruin the magic, whatever. Um, also, this is not a judgment on Santa Claus. I'm not sharing my personal thoughts on that. Um, don't let your kids listen. <laughs> yeah, don't let... It Pastor, Pastor Luke's <laughs> about to ruin everyone's childhood. <laughs> but do they grow up and they're like... And then at some point they go, hmm, Santa's handwriting on the package label looks an awful lot like mom's, right? They begin to ask that question. And they, they, you know, they inevitably come up to mom and dad and they're like, is Santa real, right? Mm -hmm. and parents, you know, and then, uh, and then once Santa's not real, so that so, who then gave me all of those gifts? Yes. You guys gave me all those gifts, okay? Does Santa actually see me when I'm doing something wrong or naughty uh. or nice, right? Like the whole, like the whole, <laughs> we're gonna have a whole generation of people deconstructing Elf on the Shelf. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong on that, one. right? Coming yeah. to that, like, uh. or or what about like you know the the big trendy thing the last several years is to get like videos of people making videos as Santa and putting the name of their kids mm -hmm. in it. Well, who was that strange guy that was telling me to behave, you know, yeah. like when I was little, um, all of those questions come in and a kid then begins to say, okay, what do I do with this new information? Do my beliefs change? Do I, you know, all that. Now that's a little bit, um, that's maybe a little bit of a slanted way to talk about um, deconstruction because I'm starting with something that is undeniably not true, right. which is Santa. But, but, then, but then the the you know, downstream from that is the, well, what else did you tell me that's not true? Right. Is the Easter bunny not real? <laughs> the Easter chicken that lays the eggs? Easter chicken. <laughs> There's an Easter chicken, yeah. guys, I swear. Um, it just, it, it provides, that example provides a framework for what happens in people's faith. Right. Yeah. You know? well, and and even, so they encounter something that may be 
they have a hard time accepting or believing anymore. And it starts a whole kind of like unraveling process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think earlier today. So I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today. I was trying to think earlier about what are some of the classic places that we see people start deconstructing yeah you know so like okay let's say i've grown i grew up in the church um you know kind of classic story parents dragged me to church every sunday morning and wednesday night you know whether i wanted to or not mm-hmm. um would describe my life or my family as a christian family in a christian home yeah. maybe i saw a lot of hypocrisy at home mm-hmm. because we're all hypocrites. Yeah. Right. And it created a little bit of discontinuity in, in me because, you know, my parents would, or were pushing me in one direction. Right. But I saw that their lives were going in, a, in another, yep. you know, that kind of, it's sort of a typical story, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and so essentially everything that they gave me in faith were forced upon me in faith and the brokenness of my relationship with them or the hypocrisy that I saw in their life brings me to a point of being like, okay, everything that they gave me, I'm now going to begin to, right. to not to question. to question whether or not this is something I believe or whether it's something that they believed on my behalf. Yeah. And I think the reason I wanted to talk about this today was um, last night at the end of one of our classes, we were having mm-hmm. a conversation with someone who described the kind of the relationship that they were having with their faith right now as one of detangling. Yeah. Which I think is maybe a better word, a, such a better word. Mm-hmm. It's much less destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Deconstruction sounds or has the like implication of yeah. taking a hammer to everything. Yeah. Well, and, uh, like the thing too is that deconstruction we're talking about it in a very faith we're we're talking about it very specifically when it comes to faith but deconstruction is like a broader intellectual it's a cultural, cultural phenomenon, phenomena yes. and it's like you know in part it's a uh it's a natural thing that comes out of postmodernism and all of that like Let's just upset all the norms. Like, let's build everything, you know, let's tear everything down. But the problem is with deconstructionism, deconstructing things, is that, well, if you deconstruct everything, you eventually end up with nothing, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit the existential crisis of the modern age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, detangling, I think, has a, is a more. I like that word too. I do too. Cause I get this image of like a big ball of spaghetti. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I use this sometimes in my counseling relationships with people is that our, our experiences and our life and our emotions and our thought patterns and our bodies and our beliefs is like a big ball of spaghetti. And often when we come to a place of crisis or we're, we're in a place of D dysregulation, we want to try and, like what's wrong with this ball of spaghetti? Yeah, and it becomes overwhelming, and we get flooded, and we can't deal with it. And yeah. so it's okay. Like, 
let's just take out a single strand of pasta one at a time, right? Talk about it and set it off to the side. Mm -hmm. And eventually, as you pull out all those things, you're eventually left with, you know, it's not a a tangled mess anymore. Right. It makes more sense. And so... The, the detangling of theological belief, I think, and, and all of the things that come along with it um, is a much more helpful, I think, language because I think it's just more honest. It, it'll, it presumes a little bit more um, like theological and intellectual honesty mm-hmm. rather than saying the premise of all of the things that I believed, I hate it. And so I'm just going to take a hammer to it. Whatever survives, survives. Right. But that's not really, it's not really a fair, it's not really giving the thing a fair shake. Right. Well, there's that, I do not know who quote, who made this quote. Maybe you can tell me who said the quote. Faith is, oh, what is, I'm going to butcher the quote. Faith is seeking understanding or faith is... Doubt seeking understanding. I think it was like an Aquinas quote or something like that. Do you I don't know? know. I don't know who it was. Um, and I'm familiar with the quote, but yeah. I'm not sure who it was. Yeah. But I guess like all that to say that like I do think that sometimes like uh, I feel like on a regular basis I will have a conversation with someone and they're like, I'm experiencing doubt. And it's like a really big scary thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand why is because sometimes when people experience doubt, they're like, well, does that mean everything is going to end up falling out from underneath of me? I'm like, well, no, doubt exists in the context of faith. You can't have doubt if you don't also have faith first. Um, it's a precondition for doubt to exist. And so, like, take that and, and, and wrestle with it. But, like, but do so in a, you know... Honest way. Honest way. In a way that doesn't necessarily just like pick the whole thing up and throw it out the window. Right. You know, you say spaghetti, I immediately thought of um, wired headphones. Or Christmas lights. Or Christmas lights, right? Like, and you're trying on, you know, eventually just like, I'm just going to go buy a new box (laughs) because you don't want to fix it. Sometimes people do that. (laughs) Right. They try. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, kind of two questions, maybe to guide some more detailed conversation. One is the one I already asked. What is one of like, what are, what are some of the like main places that start, that people start deconstructing? And what are some of the key experiences that happen in people's lives that initiate a period of detanglement or deconstruction? Yeah. Do you have any that come to your mind? Well, I, I would say, to answer the second question first. Yeah. Like what sparks it? What sparks it? Mm-hmm. I can think of a couple things. Yeah. Um, there, I think there's a couple things that spark it. Um, a deeply personal experience that, that um, a person is absolutely validated in, but that strikes again or is opposite to um what they have been believing their whole life or been taught to believe so what do you mean by that put some more flesh on so i'm talking about like um the deconstruction of purity culture yeah Mm -hmm. uh, around issues of sexuality Mm -hmm. not just not homosexuality right even just just sexuality in general yeah heterosexuality premarital sex um 
the idea of like you've lost your virginity, you've you've committed a carnal or not a, a mortal sin, um, something sure. that's you know reprehensible. Or sure, or or even you know like people begin to you know deconstruct. Um, you know, there's there's this sense where like, for instance, if you grew up in a in a type of uh, culture in regards to human sexuality that was like the you know most egregious sin that a teenager can do is to um have premarital sex right and it is like a huge thing that gets talked about in youth groups yeah it's like you know, in, like in, oh. if you do so it's it's essentially the end of the world right, right? you yeah. get that sense sure and um yeah, and we're not like this is we're not going to really necessarily or at least I'm not don't intend to really comment about that whole discussion because it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and so then someone uh, has sex before marriage, mm-hmm. right? And they may end up in a long term relationship with that, mm-hmm. right? And they use that as the starting point for like, okay, well, everything that's good in my life now, especially in this relationship, maybe I've got children or whatever like that, right. was based upon what my faith and my family told me not to do. To do. Mm-hmm. And, and in the midst of them telling me not to do it, it created a lot of shame. It created a lot of embarrassment. It created a lot of like, I was ostracized. I was seen as the person on the outside, I was the rebel child, I was the prodigal, I was the crazy one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. You know, and I don't want anything to do with the type of faith culture yeah, that that from. produces. Right. So that's kind of a, you know, like one example yeah. of, of, a, of, a, of a place that people start their deconstruction from. But mm-hmm. I've seen people flat out reject all of Christian faith mm-hmm. based on the response of the church with sexuality. Yes. Mm-hmm. V- very common thing. Mm-hmm. Very, very yeah. common thing, which is not really, I don't think actually about sexuality that is making them like re- reject the faith. I think it's like the, the feelings of shame, shame. that they received or felt like were there. Right. Might have been there, right? That made them not even want to engage the conversation of faith mm-hmm. out of a responsiveness to not not wanting any more shame. Yep, I don't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I say that's one like one example of where deconstruction starts, and then it just kind of waterfalls into like, okay, there's shame as 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 it pertains to my sexuality. You follow the bunny trail. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Right. Right. And it doesn't they say they're Jesus people. Right. It doesn't take long to get there for most people. Yeah. Um so that's that's where that starts. Yeah. I, you know, I think one, I think that's a really 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 popular one or not popular but common one. And then I think the other one that I'm seeing more and more and more of um, in, in particularly in recent years is the, um, 
moral failure of visible public leaders or personal faith leaders. Like if I I was at such and such church and turns out that that pastor was doing X, Y, Z, a lot of times it's an affair mm-hmm. of some sort um, or sexual abuse. And then the church, it's, it's like a combination of both the moral failing of a, of a, someone who was idolized maybe, or looked up to, or was important in the church or in their, in their faith. But then also the, perhaps maybe the lack of the, the way in which a church might respond, respond to, that, to it. Yeah. Right. You're just, okay. Well, cause we've had pa- pastors who have had moral failings for, and failures like that for years, right? Forever. Forever. The, the difference is, is uh, the connectedness and the shrinking of the world. We're maybe more aware of them than, than ever. Um, but now we get a front row seat to, well, how does the church respond to it? And is the church um, covering it up? Is are they you know whatever right? I've heard a gazillion horror stories, but I've also been in enough complicated um, situations to know that no one ever has the whole story. Um, that, and that's a whole we could talk about. We could go down that drama of like you know judging from afar things that we really have no context for making clear and harsh judgments on. But um, again, that's an understandable reason, particularly if you're part of the faith community where that's happening, not just a like looking onward at maybe a public figure. Like I can understand why that might cause some deconstruction, but particularly if you're in a church where that's happening, right? Like that would be cause for like, well, the person who was supposed to be the maturest of us all, and stood up front is not living a life according to the Bible. And then all the other leaders are all just like in on it and not holding him accountable or not taking the right steps and things like that. Why then should I take these things seriously that this person has told me? Right. And there goes the thread. Um, I think similarly, um, what comes maybe maybe is a bigger picture of the one that you mentioned around with sexuality, but is when people experience extreme amounts of control from a church. Um, and, and typically when you're like, like I'll, I'll say that typically those situations are just categorically wrong. Yep. When we're getting into a place of like, like, very much trying to control all thoughts, behaviors, like uh, in spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, those types of things. And they begin to like, someone will, um, you know, begin to say like, uh, I don't want to live my life like this. Right. And then they have to leave. And those are typically the more extreme places you start to get into more, things that are a little bit more closer to cults or are cults, but like even just like, um, but yeah, any place where, where law legalism and control kind of mingle a I feel like a lot of people come out of that at some point. Um, usually because of a, like I'm tired of living this way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, 
I think there's a part of that too that answers the other question, which is when does deconstruction in a person's life actually happen? Yeah. Now it's different for everyone, but I think in general, it usually happens when there's like some emotional mm-hmm. or physical separation from the origin yeah. of the faith that they are deconstructing. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of kids go away to college. Begin to deconstruct or untangle Uh or redefine, Mm -hmm. right? If you are a parent of someone who is in college and you feel like they have just fallen off the rails of life in in their freshman year, Mm -hmm. I say it's pretty normal. Yeah, 100%. It's pretty normal. And they probably haven't actually fallen off the rails. Mm -hmm. They've probably just fallen off your rails. Yes. That uh, was it's not and it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. No. And it's not. and you and you actually you actually kind of want that to happen. A little bit. Yeah, you yeah. you you want some you want some personal ownership and development of their own right. belief and faith. And then sometimes that that journey can be a pretty long one. It can be. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes painful. Mm-hmm. But it's important. Yeah. Um, and so when there is a kind of a, a beginning of a separation, sometimes you see it um, when there's a, uh, not necessarily a physical separation, but there begins to be an emotional separation. So you can be physically proximate to someone or something or some people, but right. then beginning to deconstruct. I mean, your example of like cultish type, super high controlling environments there begins right. to be some emotional separation from yep. that community of origin and then they begin to question inside the midst of the community right and the community reacts strongly against the questioning yep. and that strong reaction usually is an indicator for them that they right wow i was right yep and they're they're gone but then in the process and then now they get the physical separation and now the deconstruction really starts to happen. Yeah, because the, the constraints are off a little Because the bit. constraints are yeah. off. I feel like if I were to put a general age range, deconstruction can obviously happen at any point in life and, and what. But like I would say that like the most common age range to be de- deconstructing, I would say, is maybe between 17 and 27 Yeah, I was going to say like 18 to 30. But, yeah. you know, basic thing, you, you know, you're getting your – out of the house, you're going to college, you're starting your career, you're meeting new people. Yep. You might get in you might get married and meet your spouse's family. Right. Who might have a completely different worldview. Yeah. Or culture or, or whatever. Or you might meet your spouse. Or exactly. <laughs> Fall in love with someone who's got different yep. values, ideas than you. And you know, and that's a that's a place where sometimes things shift. Sometimes you deconstruct so you can stay in a relationship. That happens a lot. It's not the most healthy reason to deconstruct, in my opinion. It's probably one of the most unhealthy, if you ask me. I mean, we see this a lot when you have, even with um, with kids, I say kids, but people, with people who have what we would consider to be a healthy faith, mm-hmm. strong faith, not a faith that's been jammed down their throat. 
Yeah. Not a faith that's been pushed into them through shame and guilt and condemnation, but one that they've truly received and have lived themselves. Mm-hmm. Then they meet someone yep. who they really like, but who is maybe um, uh, spiritual but doesn't follow Jesus or yeah, something, something stupid like that, like that yep. you know? Um, uh, and or has no faith at all. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of their like desire to be with that person, they somewhat of a deconstruction or an abandonment or a walking away from or mm-hmm. diluting of whatever you want to call it. It becomes a like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yep. Um, and, and it's a form of deconstruction. I think that happens quite a bit. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Have you ever deconstructed anything? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's the that's probably the flip side of the coin is that I think we've maybe been talking about deconstruction. Deconstruction is not always a bad thing. No. It it, it can be, yeah. but like Yeah, I think we can use it. I think we can use it as a way to describe um maybe the process of developing a deeper or more nuanced perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe we do our own detangling of the things that we thought were of utmost importance mm-hmm. or the things that we didn't think were important then that we think are important now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... You know, you asked me that question, and then I've been kind of like subconsciously thinking, though. Well, what what would be an example of something that I've deconstructed? And I, yeah, I have a hard time thinking of anything in particular myself because I was wondering. I was like, is there anything? I feel like I have. Well, yeah, I feel like I have too. But we, I think we probably tend to think that the, the things that we believe, we've always believed, and that's why we believe them now. I'm right. sure there's lots right. of stuff that I that's there. I think maybe more than. The like, I'm not so sure that my theology on primary issues has changed. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm pretty positive it has not changed. But probably my the vigor at which I will defend my secondary theological opinions yeah. is much much lower than it was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not because maybe I I don't have strong beliefs about those secondary theological opinions, mm-hmm. but it's that I have put them in the right nuanced category of being secondary. secondary. Yeah. You know? Well, and, you know, I think, I think I would say something similar of, um, I think the, this is actually a really big, big thing. Um, but I think the, realizing that things are maybe not as black and white or as clear as maybe I was told or others thought they were or told me they were at one point, the, you know, so this, this would happen, um, with like extreme regularity and you probably saw it maybe too, um, in your higher education, but like my Bible college, like I would routinely hear, 
uh, students, and they would be just like blown away as they're learning and studying theology and studying the Bible for the first time. And as they're coming and they're wrestling with like actual critical studies and really difficult topics and like sometimes these individuals were learning for the first time that the Bible wasn't written in English, right? And that's or an, that Jesus wasn't white. Or Jesus wasn't white. Now, those are kind of extreme examples, but like they, they were coming and they were like, Ma, I feel like I was lied to by my youth pastor. I'm still a believer, still have faith, still pursuing Jesus, but I feel like my church lied to me because they were giving me these apologetic answers that now that I'm actually studying this, I'm realizing are really pat or really superficial or were really like convenient because they tied everything up in a nice bow, but they left out all the nuance. They left out the places and the gaps where faith still had to stand in the gap. And, and now they're shaking their faith up a little bit because they're like, well, I thought things were just simpler than that because, you know, such and such pastor or such and youth leader told me so. And I think this is a really big, uh, this is a big thing for me. And I think it came through and, uh, I can't remember what the question was when I was being interviewed here. Someone asked me a question about like uh, responding to children's questions and things like that. Like how would I like explain a difficult theological topic to a kid? And my answer and my conviction is don't lie. So like as much as possible, tell the whole truth at an age appropriate level. And I think sometimes it might be really con- cuz like there's a there there's there's a section of like uh, of christianity that i used to bump into more often that like is all about like trying to because they know kids deconstruct their faith at college age and when they go away to college so they try and like sure kids up with all of these apologetics and try and build them up in the faith before they leave to college cuz once they leave the nest they're like gone or whatever. Like can't learn anything anymore. Can't learn anything anymore. Yep. They're going to go away and they're going to deconstruct um, and they're going to lose their faith. And so there's this huge emphasis on trying to build up kids' faith in a high school area um, before they go away to college in anticipation of that potential like life crisis. You don't want them to lose their faith in college. And what I think sometimes happens in, in the interest of building up those kids' faith we maybe perhaps simplify really complex answers to complex questions. And then we give the kids those like, like, okay, just accept this apologetic answer. They go away, they go to college, they learn things. And then they maybe look back and they're like, that answer doesn't hold water anymore. What then am I like, why was I being given subpar theological answers have you ever do you, have you noticed that or encountered that before uh yeah i guess i never really thought about it mm-hmm. but um or i guess i re- never really thought about the down the road implications mm-hmm. of that but I, I i do see how that can be you know that can be a thing you know i i wonder like what the difference then between um, not necessarily lying because I'm not sure that I would say that people are out there lying to kids no. about theological things. Yeah, I think that there's probably a 
uh, that they're that they're bringing the lowest level of truth, lowest level of non-nuanced truth to them, mm-hmm. but then maybe never building upon that most that most simple explanation. Yeah, and just letting that be mm-hmm. what it is, and never revealing um, or exposing to the maybe the whole reality that exists within the question or the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I I like, for example, I think the two, uh, two topics that probably came up, come up the most is like authority of scripture. I think if we, if people, I would see people given a really simplified version of, of the authority of scripture, then they would come and they would realize Oh, the way the Bible came together was way more complex than I was told. Now I'm unsure as to whether or not the Bible is authoritative. The other one that was... And we had that question last night. We had that question last night. Yep. It's understandable. It's a very common question. The second question, and I don't know, we might get people who are angry about this one, is when it comes to um, seven-day creationism and just exactly how did God go about creating the universe and... You know, was it a literal seven day? I know people who will die on that hill. Sure. Of like, it was a literal seven yep. day, precisely the way it was told in the in in the first chapters of Genesis. To believe anything else is to not be Christian. I know people who would say that. Yes. If you go to any, um, you go to a Bible college, you go out there, you'll find other Christians who confess and believe in Christ, but have slightly different interpretations of that passage, who still absolutely 100% believe and confess that God created the universe, that that passage is authoritative, has things to teach us and influence the Christian life, has deep theological significance, but is not reflective of the specific uh, details of how God created. And they might have a different view. And so all now you're encountering Christians with different views. Whoa, like, you know, and so that becomes a, a point again of potential unraveling or detangling or deconstructing. Yeah, I think those are two really good examples mm-hmm. of maybe some of the things that you could give really basic, simple answers for, never revisit. And then when there's exposure to different perspectives or nuancing, mm-hmm. then it becomes troublesome yeah because everything that they've built their faith on at that point seems to be you know built on sand yeah yeah seems uncertain right mm-hmm. right yeah do we have any advice for anyone who would be deconstructing um yes i would say I would say that the tendency in the process of deconstruction is to surround yourself with people who are also deconstructing. Yeah. And while I wouldn't discount that altogether, I would say you get into a little bit of like self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. spiral. Yeah. 
where um, it's like the classic example of, you know, that we, we believe the narratives that we, we continually expose ourselves to the narratives, for instance, in the media Mm -hmm. that we already believe. Yes. And we, we, we won't, we won't expose ourselves to narratives that are on the opposite side of the spectrum. Mm Mm-hmm than what we already believe because what we believe is right. So why would we expose ourselves to the other? Yeah. I think that's dangerous. Um, I think it, um, it doesn't actually make us more firm or have more security in what we believe. Mm -hmm. So I would say to the person who is going through a period of deconstruction is to, make the effort to sit with and have honest conversation with someone who has maybe already gone through a period of Mm -hmm. deconstruction, but who may sit on the opposite side of the thing that you are believing or not believing or whatever. So that you can have an honest conversation and that nuance can be, Nuance can enter into the room, yeah, or yeah. perspective can enter into mm-hmm. the room. Um, I feel like you're trying to avoid people who will just yes, yes, n- like be yes men mm-hmm. and nod and affirm uh, in a really unhelpful, like kind of like yes, us too. That will just like and that does not necessarily have good guardrails on it. No. But you're also trying to avoid um, someone who is going to just want to shut you down. Yes. Uh, like crush you a little bit. Right. Maybe try and pull you into line yeah. well, in and a I really would, forceful way. Yeah. Well, and I would say in particular, that was advice to people who are deconstructing. But I like maybe advice to parents of kids who are mm-hmm. deconstructing is when they enter that period and if they have physical separation from you, they're at college or something like that. I'm going to tell you right now, the harder you push back on that, yep. the further they're going to go. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a difficult truth to wrestle with because parents are wrestling with this truth at that stage is that their kids are not theirs and they're not kids. They're, they're their own. They're their own individual person. And and I say that as someone who's not a parent, but I hope, and I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a, so I'm going to say this with uh, gentleness because I don't even know I'm not a parent. But I think it's a truth that is really hard to hold into perspective when you raise kids that even when they are little infants that you're holding them, they are little individual people. Um, they, they know it, at no point do they stop being an extension of you and become an individual that that is always true. There needs um, to be some contextual deconstruction of um, raise up a child in the way he should go. Right. And when they are old, they will not depart from it, which yeah. is just like, a, well, I just have to raise them up in the way that they should go. And then it will ostensibly remove right. their sense of free will and sin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that they will go the way in which they've been told. Yeah. Uh, when you when you compare that against the whole context and, and wisdom of Scripture, it becomes pretty clear that um, 
I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in the way I was told. Right. And that's for both in a negative and positive way. Right. Like I chose to follow Jesus Mm -hmm. where that necessarily wasn't like. Wasn't a foregone conclusion. It wasn't a foregone conclusion. That's not necessarily the way that I was raised. In fact, Mm -hmm. the signs would point towards a completely different conclusion. Yeah. And it's the opposite is also true Mm -hmm. because I have a will. And the Holy Spirit works in my life, and there's grace right. upon grace, and yeah. you know, and and we're freeing individual people. So I would say to parents, and I am a parent, and I'm not at that stage yet, but I'm also not without perspective. I'm like at like 20 years of perspective of seeing parents absolutely like um, just grip that steering wheel oh my gosh like crazy and i'm telling you right now i've not seen a single example where the harder you grip the better it gets yeah yeah well i you know the thing is is like we've said that this is deconstruction is nothing new it's very old right i would even point and go back to the reformation was its own form of deconstruction Right, the Protestant Reformation, the breaking Absolutely off of the Catholic, was, yeah. right. So you want you want my short answer of why in the West, in particular, we deconstruct so much Protestant Reformation, yeah. like because we are a we are a Protestantism is a fruit of right. probably the most significant deconstruction that's ever happened, yeah. apart from the deconstruction of the Jewish faith into the Christian faith. Right. Well. <laughs> And that's an overstatement. That's, that's an, over, that's an, an oversimplification. Yeah, yeah, that's an oversimplification. But um, but but the point being made that like you want to know why the Catholic Church has mostly stayed the way it's been, Eastern Orthodoxy has stayed the way it's been. It's because of the way they were informed. Whereas in Protestant Reformation, Protestantism is wide and varied and vastly different and continues to change and shift. And we have new denominations all the time. Why? Because we started as a reformation, or we started from a place of deconstruction. That's my quick little like social commentary as to why the West is the way it is. Yeah. Um, but I had something else I wanted to say. <laughs> I can't remember what it is anymore. Um, but there is oh, all that to say, I would remind anyone who's like, if you are a parent and you're dealing with kids, like you at some point sowed wild oats you were at some point like you know you like i think back we can like probably the biggest generational deconstruction would have been the hippie movement Mm -hmm. that i can think of in like Mm -hmm. semi-recent history sure um you know where every generation is wrestled with the questions of what i have received what is good and what is not and if something is not good, what can I do to set that aside and build something better in its place? And I think the temptation of every every generation is to think, we're the generation that got it right. And we have blind spots. There are things that I probably do not have right, will not have right, and the generation that comes after me will do better than I did. Mm-hmm. But there's also things I think I hopefully do have right. And the generation coming after me hopefully carries those things on and maybe they will drop them. And I don't know. That's part of the 
trusting of faith and passing on of all of those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Anything else from you on this or? No, I think that's probably enough uh, yeah. <laughs> before I start saying yeah. things to get me in trouble. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we'd always love to be able to talk about the issues that we talk about more specifically. Yeah. So if you're listening or watching and you're like, I would like to hear some conversation that drills down a little bit deeper into this particular thing that you said mm-hmm. or whatever, um, send those questions to us. Yeah. You know, we have a texting um, mailbag line, mm-hmm. 716-201-0507, and would love to hear your questions yeah. or your topics for us to talk about. You can also comment them on the video if you're watching on YouTube or um, always share, Yeah, like it, subscribe. Do all, um, hit all the buttons. Hit all the buttons you can, except the thumbs down one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, share this with your friends, okay? Yep. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next week. Yep. See you all next week.